Well, good morning, everyone. It is still the morning, yeah, it is. Good morning. Um, hey, it's good to be with you in Central. We're going to read God's Word. This is John chapter 20. I'm going to start the first verse, familiar part of the Easter story. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And ending at verse 18, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. Back in the early 1980s, when I was minister in uh, Killyleigh in County Down, I went, as I frequently did, to the Royal Victoria Hospital to visit a member of my congregation who wasn't well. Uh, drove out to Belfast, I parked the car in the car park, went into the hospital, did the call, came back out to the car park, and the car wasn't there. I could draw a number of conclusions from that moment. The first conclusion that I might draw from it was that I had parked the car in a car park, but this wasn't the car park I parked it in. Alternatively, I might be in the right car park, but I could be in the wrong place. Or alternatively, the car had been stolen. The car actually was stolen, but we'll not go there. But I had a dilemma. I'm in the car park where I think I parked my car, and my car is not there. Why is it not there? The Easter story revolves around an inconvenient fact. Not unlike that. 
an empty tomb. It's a fact about that first Easter Sunday morning which has persisted through history. One of the most interesting facts uh, about the next kind of couple of hundred years uh, in, in early Christian history is that even those who were out, uh, outspoken opponents of the Christian faith never questioned the fact that on the first Easter Sunday morning there was an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Now we who live after 2,000 years of Christian history and devotion jump to the immediate and obvious conclusion the tomb was empty because of the resurrection because Jesus who had been buried there had now been raised to life. For those who were there on the first Easter Sunday however it didn't go like that. It wasn't that Jesus hadn't told them to expect something amazing. In fact, one of the biggest ironies about the first Easter story is this, that Jesus had told his disciples that resurrection day would occur. They forgot that, but the authorities remembered it. And one of the reasons why a guard was placed on the tomb was the concern of the authorities that because Jesus had said this to his disciples, they would construct a resurrection by taking the body away and telling everybody that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So guards had been placed on the tomb. The enemies of Jesus remembered that he'd said it. The disciples forgot. Why did they not remember? Why was it not the first thought that entered their head on that Sunday morning? You have to remember that some of those who came to the tomb early on the first Easter Sunday morning had laid Jesus' body to rest there just 36 hours before. In haste, because of the Passover, they had performed the Jewish rituals associated with burial. On the television there just a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a program, documentary, and in that documentary, they talked about the volunteers in Jewish communities who now, in the 21st century, prepare bodies for burial. In, uh, in, in the Jewish faith, bodies are buried within 24 hours of, of their death. And the bodies are prepared by teams of volunteers who wash the bodies and prepare them properly so that they can be buried with respect and honor. And there was a volunteer team who came to prepare the body of Jesus on the evening on which it was buried, washing, embalming with spices, wrapping in linen, and with love and devotion, laying the body to rest in the tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. They remembered 36 hours later what that was like. Even before the horrors of the cross, Jesus was in a bad way. And after Joseph of Arimathea got permission to take him down from the cross, Jesus' body was a pale shadow of the strong carpenter who had come from Nazareth all those years before. And like anyone does, when they gaze on the body of a loved one who has just passed away, they knew that Jesus was gone and that what they needed to do now was to bury him. So when they found an empty tomb 36 hours later, they assumed that his enemies or grave robbers had been at work or they were just plain confused. 
Dr. Luke tells us that after Peter saw the empty tomb and the burial cloths inside, he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Either people thought the body has been stolen or people just didn't have a clue what on earth had happened. They didn't know what the explanation was. In John's account of all this, one person plays a key role in the revelation of the real reason of the empty tomb. She was a Galilean woman, one of the small group of women who had accompanied the ministry of Jesus and had met his needs these past three years. She is one of the few characters caught up in the Easter story who is mentioned in all four gospel accounts of the first Easter Sunday. And in spite of that, we know almost nothing about her other than the fact that Mark records that she was one of the many people Jesus had healed. Her life had once been a wreck of a life, inhabited by seven demons, and Jesus had cast them out and healed her. On the movie about the life of Jesus, which was filmed by Johnny Cash in 1973, called The Gospel Road, When Cash comes to deal with this particular woman and her part in the story, he says this, but what little is told has made her the subject of more speculation and controversy than any woman I ever heard of. She features in Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, as Jesus' wife and the mother of his child. And that is, of course, as factual as any of the other supposed facts in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code novel. On my favorite Chris Christopherson album, which is Spooky Lady's Sideshow, there is a song about Mary Magdalene called The Lights of Magdala. And on and on and on I could go. But in spite of whatever little we know about her, and of all the speculation that there has been around her, in John's account, Mary Magdalene is the one we need to watch. Because as she becomes involved in the story, we see two things. First of all, we see the first believer. John's account of the resurrection reads like a report compiled from the testimony of eyewitnesses. Bishop William Temple says this, it is most manifestly the record of a personal memory. Nothing else can account for the little details so vivid, so little like the kind of thing that comes from invention or imagination. Things, for example, like the fact that there was a race between Peter and John to get to the tomb, and their separate entry into the tomb is so consistent with what we know of their respective personalities from the other events in the Gospels. Peter brash, goes straight into the tomb. John, who gets there first, more diffident, more shy, holds back for a while before finally summoning up the courage to follow Peter into the tomb. Seems so consistent with exactly the kind of people that they were. The arrangement of the grave clothes in the tomb, described so carefully. The use of Aramaic words in the conversation between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Leslie Newbegin says, the resurrection cannot be part of any history unless it is the center and turning point. St. John's narrative is history written in the faith that it is. That is the Christian faith, 
and the Christian understanding of history. This is the central fact of the history of the world. And what is the history? Mary Magdalene sets out for the tomb before daybreaks. When she arrives, the stone which sealed the tomb has been rolled aside. She runs to find Peter and John in their separate residences, and they make for the tomb. John gets there first and stays outside. Peter arrives second and rushes on and followed a little bit later by John. What John observed when he finally gets into the tomb is recorded carefully. He saw the strips of linen lying there, verse 6 says, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. When John sees this, one thing was immediately obvious. The state of the tomb could not be the result of a grave robbery. There was no sign of haste or violence. In fact, in this whole narrative that John records of what happened on that first Easter Sunday morning, there is no hype or spectacle. It couldn't be more ordinary. Leslie Newbegin says, all is calm and orderly. The wrappings of a corpse are left behind in their places, but they no longer enclose the body of Jesus. And Peter is searching for an explanation. Like John, he can see this. this is not a robbery, but he is stuck for an alternative. And then we read, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. John's reaction is different from Peter's. He sees exactly the same things that Peter sees. But what he sees leads him to faith. See, this wasn't the first time John had seen an empty tomb where a dead body had been recently laid. Just a short while before this, he had been present in Bethany when on the command of Jesus, Lazarus had vacated his tomb. He came out breathing again uh, days after his burial, but still covered in the linen burial cloths. John was now looking at similar cloths, but they were not wrapped around a person. They were lying exactly where that person had been laid in the tomb just 36 hours before. And it was obvious to John in that moment that whatever happened in this tomb not only caused the tomb to be vacated, but caused the burial clothes to be vacated too. And he knew exactly what he was looking at. He was looking at evidence of resurrection. Fascinating. Because John saw no angels. Unlike other people in the story, he saw no angels. He didn't even see Jesus. All he saw was an empty tomb and empty burial cloths, and he believed. Okay, the full significance of what he was believing, of what he had come to have faith in, had not yet been teased out. He says in verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. There was a lot of things going on here that John didn't know and understand in that moment. But in that moment, he just knew that Jesus, who had undoubtedly died, was alive again 
but not alive in the same way that Lazarus had been alive just a short time before this. This was something of an other order altogether. He believed. And it was Mary Magdalene's devotion that drew him to that place for him to see for himself what God had done. I got a text message last night from a friend. And she said, I, I really wanted to be at Central this morning. I wanted to be there when you were preaching. But she said, I, I had booked tickets for Carn Money because I asked my chum if she would go. John got to see this because Mary came knocking at his door to say, you need to come and see something. The first believer was the consequence of what Mary Magdalene had done. I find it very hard to believe that anybody could ever say no to Linda. <laughs> How could you do that? Such an offensive thing. And yet that's exactly the kind of person that Mary Magdalene is calling us to be, isn't it? Believers don't come out of thin air. They come out of the devotion of others. The first believer we meet in this text, and we meet that first believer because of Mary Magdalene and her action. But in the text, we also meet the first witness. As we've already noted, John's account is so very ordinary. Except, I suppose, for one feature, which is that when Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb after she has got Peter and John and, and, and encouraged them to come and see what has happened, when she returns to the tomb after that, she too looks into the tomb just as the two disciples had done, and she meets two angels. Now, if she had thought just for a moment about what she was looking at, she might have realized that she was in a holy place. In the temple in Jerusalem, and in the tabernacle that preceded it, was situated the most holy place. She had never been there. Only the high priest ever got there, and he only got there once every year. But she knew from the scriptures that in that place was the covenant box that contained the tablets that had the Ten Commandments written on it and the urn that contained the manna that had fed the children in the desert. That box had a, a lid overlaid in gold and it was overshadowed by two angels, one each side. This was the mercy seat, the place of redemption and forgiveness because the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled there. And Mary was looking at the shelf in the grave on which Jesus had been laid and at the foot of it and at the head of it, two angels. The place where the sacrifice had been laid. But she didn't notice that. She is weeping and the angels ask her why. She is weeping because she is desperate to locate Jesus and as she answers their question, she becomes aware of movement behind her and she turns to face a man. It is Jesus, but she assumes it is the gardener. Why on earth would she do that? 
Why, why would she think that? Well, you know, it's funny what we don't see when we're looking for something else. My favorite story from the red chair in Graham Norton's show um, is a story that I heard a number of years ago someone tell uh, who survived the experience and didn't get up ended in the chair. And he told the story about how uh, a number of years before this, uh, he and his wife had were 10 years married, and they had taken a special trip to New York to celebrate their wedding. And um, they were in a restaurant having a meal, and when they sat down in the restaurant, they realized, he realized that Bono was sitting at a table just a short distance away from them with a friend. His wife was a fanatical U2 fan. And so at one point when she rose from the table to go out to the loo, at a similar point in time, Bono had also left, presumably, to go to the loo. He went over to the table where Bono had been sitting, and he said to Bono's friend, look, explain the situation. We're here from Ireland. We're 10 years married. We're celebrating it tonight. My wife is a phenomenal YouTube fan. Do you think there's any chance that you could ask Bono, would he come over to the table and say hello? It would just so make her night. So he went back to the table, his wife returned, Bono returned, and a few moments later, he rose from the table and he came over to the table to speak to this couple from Ireland celebrating their 10th wedding anniversary, and she was completely bowled over by the experience. He returned to the table. Shortly after that, he and his friend left. And then a while later, after they finished their meal, uh, her husband went up to pay for the meal, and the person on the desk said, you don't have to pay for the meal, the meal has already been paid for you. He said, wow, did Bono pay for the meal? No, she said, Bruce Springsteen did. <laughs> the friend that Bono had been sitting with, the person he had been talking to at the table was Bruce Springsteen, and he never noticed. He wasn't looking for Bruce Springsteen. He was looking for Bono. Mary Magdalene wasn't looking for Jesus. She was looking for a body. And she would do anything to prevent that body's violation. Anything to find it and bring it back with love and devotion to the place where she thought it should be. Over the years, Christian and I had lots of discussions about whether or not we would sign cards to donate our organs after we died, or whether or not we would get cremated or buried. And, and, and Christine was kind of quite sympathetic to the idea that maybe we should sign up a donor card and all the rest of it. And I remember saying to her on several occasions, if you do that and you die before me, I will not honor your wishes. I understand exactly how Mary Magdalene felt in these moments. There was nothing else she could do other than protect the body of the person that she loved from violation after his death, and she would do anything to get that body back. And she says to the person standing in front of her, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And then, in Aramaic, he says her name, Mariam. And in that instant, her eyes are open to see what has been standing in front of her that she never actually noticed. And she says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, my teacher. It's wonderful how the saying of your name brings you to attention. 
You can be past it, beyond yourself, in all sorts of a tizzy about this, that, or the other thing, and someone who loves you just says your name. And it brings you up short. And it calls you to attention. She hears her name in Aramaic from a voice she knows so well. In a moment or two, she will hurry back to the others and she will describe what has just occurred with these words, I have seen the Lord. The first witness to the resurrected Christ is a woman with a past. And before she gives her testimony, she reacts just as you or I would have in her position. She throws her arms around Jesus. And then comes one of the strangest sayings in this whole section of the gospel. Surely, as David Bentley Hart translates it, Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. What does this mean? Jesus was indicating that the kind of intimacy Mary Magdalene and the others had enjoyed with Jesus for the last three years is now at an end. It's over. Not because Jesus was dead and gone, but because he was alive with the Father. And from now on, as Jesus himself has already told them, they would be intimate with him, yes, but in a different way. In John chapter 15, Jesus had put it like this, talking to the disciples, he says, truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Mary wasn't rebuked for embracing Jesus. She was being introduced to a new relationship with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. I am going to ascend to the Father, to my Father and the person who has now become your Father, my God and your God. And I will send to you on his authority the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was here, when he was with Mary Magdalene, he couldn't be with others. When he was at John's house, he couldn't be at Peter's. But now he is to be present with everyone and there is to be intimacy for all with him through the coming of the Holy Spirit. Leslie Newbegin says, her witness to the disciples is that she has seen the risen Lord and at the same time that he has told her of the new reality of which his risen presence is the sign problem is that even now, even after two millennia of faith, we still don't get it. That we have been invited into the same relationship with Jesus that the disciples had sustained because Jesus is with the Father and the Holy Spirit has come. I doubt if there's anyone who really loves Jesus who wouldn't have wanted to have been in Mary Magdalene's position that day with her arms tightly around the one who had redeemed her. But actually, that's not as good as what was still to come. 
Actually, because Jesus has gone to be with the Father and the Holy Spirit has come. All the world, all creation, every person can come to the knowledge and the love of God and the intimacy of the Holy Spirit. Don't cling to this, Jesus says to Mary. It's okay, but don't cling to this. Instead, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the message which the first witness brings to us. The power and presence of the Holy Spirit is an Easter Sunday thing, not just a Pentecost thing. And Mary is the first witness. John, the first believer, the one who sees the cloths and who understands in a moment what they mean. Mary is the first witness, the first person to see Jesus alive, to throw her arms around the risen body of the living Lord and in that moment to understand that this is not how it is going to be anymore. That true intimacy with the Father and the Son will come by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And that means that right here, right now, in this moment when we meet, the risen Jesus is here. The first believer reminds us of the need to bring people into opportunity to see what God is doing. The first witness reminds us that right here, right now, the living Lord that Mary embraced that morning, fresh from the tomb, is with us now. And as we open our hearts and invite the Holy Spirit to come, and as we seek his blessing and presence among us, we also experience the presence of Jesus himself. He is here. Let us open our hearts to him. Let us worship him. Let us rejoice in him.